Hi, my name is Aleš Ernitzl. I'm from Slovenia. I'm formerly educated philosopher, sadly analytical philosopher, which means I don't have imagination. Uh, and uh, my guest today is Dr. E. Michael Jones, a prolific Catholic philosopher, thinker, ex-academic. What happened to you, Dr. Jones? Uh, would you describe, would you tell to our Slovene audience, you were an assistant professor at a Catholic university, right. St. Yes. Uh, Mary's College, and you were fired because... Yeah, you... I, I, I got a PhD uh, from Temple University in 1979 in American literature. Wrote my dissertation on Nathaniel Hawthorne. That's now available as a book called The Angel and the Machine. Uh, and I was hired uh, in at the MLA convention in 78 to teach at St. Mary's College, which is in South Bend, Indiana. So I came out here and uh, one year later, I was uh, fired uh, because of my stand on abortion. Now, this was a Catholic college. I, I was a little bit shocked. I had to go through a lot of explanation. I'd say I got fired because of abortion and they say, oh yeah, it's a Catholic. No, I said I was against abortion. So um, that led me to uh, abandon academe and start a magazine called Culture Wars, now called uh, called Fidelity, and it's now called Culture Wars. So it was uh, God intervening in my life and doing me a favor by getting me out of academe when the when it was a good time to leave. But how does that happen for an average Slovene uh, political commentator, political thinker? It's uh, not so. It's not usual. Um, how, how should we grasp the fact that you were fired from the Catholic college because you were against abortion? Does that mean that the Catholic Church in America is being subverted? Yes. The, the subversion of the Catholic Church began with Catholic colleges and universities. Uh, and that began immediately after the end of the Second Vatican Council. The big crisis came in 1968 when the church issued Humanae Vitae, the encyclical against uh, birth control. And there was a revolution on the campus of the Catholic University of America. Uh, that uh, the university which is run by the bishops, okay? That is the standard story. The, the more important story was that one year before that, uh, there was a professor at Catholic U by the name of Charles Curran, uh, who was preaching uh, sexual revolution in his moral theology class. The bishops let his contract expire, and then they backed down and rehired him. This had disastrous consequences because uh, in that same summer, Father Hesburgh, the president of Notre Dame University, used the current affair as a way of stealing Notre Dame University from the Catholic Church. He is privatized it, is what we would say now, basically put it under a lay board of trustees. And that set the paradigm for all of Catholic higher education in the, in the United States of America. And that meant nobody lives in a vacuum. And that meant instead of following the church directives, the Catholic University followed government directives. And so uh, that meant uh, support for contraception because 
the government was getting involved in the promotion of contraception, population control. This was the beginning of that era. Hesburgh, it turns out, was working with the Rockefellers to promote contraception. They were the ones who were paying him uh, to make these changes. So femini- uh, uh, what the consequence of this was feminism. Women's liberation followed naturally from the invention of the birth control pill. And women's liberation became a force in American politics during the 1970s. And during this period of time, Catholic institutions, which were run by nuns, were especially susceptible to feminism. I've said before, feminism was to nuns what whiskey was to the Indians. They had a fatal weakness for it. Uh, and the, they all got intoxicated by feminism. And by the time I arrived, as I said, I arrived at this Catholic college, called itself a Catholic college, run by nuns in 1979. By that time, the feminists had taken over uh, the college. Uh, So I I knew something was going on. So when I was at the MLA convention, I asked the people, what uh, what was the relationship between feminism and Catholicism at St. Mary's? And I, I had bought a folding bicycle. Uh, a year before in Cambridge. And I rode that bicycle to the MLA convention. I car- folded it up and carried it into the room. And they were so amazed at this folding bicycle, they forgot to talk about anything else. So I asked the question, and then one of the people said to me, can you unfold the bicycle? So they never answered my question. I got hired, and then I got fired a year later when they finally realized that I was against abortion. Fascinating. So uh, when... We average um, people look at today's Pope and we think of him as a first subversive element of the Catholic Church. We're far behind. This has been happening for years now, for decades. How far should we go when we ask ourselves, uh, when did the subversion of the Catholic Church happen? Or is it just the States? Is it just America? Or is it uh, about uh, the whole world? Well, what what do you mean by subversion? Specifically, what I said is the the change in allegiance from the Catholic Church as the organizing principle to the United States of America as the organizing Mm -hmm. principle. So we're talking about the the heresy that uh, Leo XIII called Americanism. It was always dormant, uh, and it came out, flared up again in an especially virulent state after the Second Vatican Council, because at that point there was a state of confusion, and people who wanted to uh, do things like steal property uh, were had cover. Confusion is always a good time to, 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 to engage in theft, and that's what happened here. And it happened in America first because subversion is, in this sense, means subjecting yourself to the control of the American empire. So obviously it's not going to happen in Slovenia in 1967 because you were, that was Yugoslavia. Mm. Nobody even knew there was a Slovenia at that point. Everybody thought it was, and that was Tito and that was communism. And we knew he had his differences with the Russians, but still it's not going to happen there. You were, you, you were preserved the entire communist bloc was in many ways preserved from this type of subversion because you had clear a clear opponent 
in every in every country. Uh, so, for example, in Poland, uh, you had Cardinal Wyszynski standing up to the communist. In Hungary, you had Cardinal Menzenti. And in Yugoslavia, you had Cardinal Stepinac. So you, you had an adversarial relationship with the government that everybody understood. And that protected the church. In the United States, it was the opposite. The, the dangerous situation is when the church considers the government its friend. And that was precisely what it was like in the United States during the 1950s, because this is the era of the anti-communist crusade. And that the church was fully on board with collaborating and they got used to collaborating with the government. And they felt, I think if you ask Father Hesburgh, he would feel that the, the government had a superior understanding of ultimate reality and human nature uh, to the Catholic Church because they were Americans. So you were spared that because of communism. Yeah, well, to the, today's uh, uh, politi Slovene politicians, or, or at least Slovene politicians that uh, made it through the Slovene independence from Yugoslavia, uh, that were supposed to make a transition from communism to capitalism or liberal democracy or whatever, well, they were all uh, sort of communists. They were all in communist party. Even the right wingers were all sort of communists, but they were uh, proponents of, of a so-called communism with a human face, even right. from, the, from the 60s on. Uh, uh, you could listen uh, for uh, to Milan Kuchan that was uh, for 10 years, a pre that was the first president of an independent Slovenia, and was a president for 10 years and is still very uh, has plenty of influence even today uh you could hear those people talk about ideas that you could only hear i mean that started in america so the, the influence of america on yugoslavia was uh, is a, is an old thing is a decade old thing right I, yes uh, I think I think one of the crucial uh, artistic artifacts of this period is uh, that that film by Dusan Makayev. Makayev. Dusan Makayev. I I don't know about him, but yeah, it's probably Makayev. He's a Serb. Uh, 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 yeah. He's a Serb. He was a Serb, and the film was about Wilhelm Reich. It's called W R Mysteries of the Organism, and it came out in 1971. So we're talking about the change from classic communism, which deals with uh, economic issues, to the new left, which deals with sexual issues as the primary issue. And he was part of that same thing, part of the same wave uh, that uh, Michel Foucault was part of. He, he, he redefined communism during this period of time. And that, that film made a big impression on America. And it became part of the whole wave of uh, introducing Wilhelm Reich to America. Uh, it was a very important film during that period of time. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, Aloysia Stepinac before. Um, uh, we, we people from former Yugoslavia, even uh, of my age, we went through certain education and we were educated in the sense uh, 
we got to know that Stepinac was um, a fascist. Uh, uh, it was a uh, a part of the Ustache uh, movement uh, that uh, um, the Endeha movement that uh, supposedly or it did collaborated with uh, with Hitler. With Hitler, what's your take on on Stepinac, uh, and his uh, work? Do you know? Uh, Stepinac's uh, good or? I think that's the that's the lie that the communists tried to use against Stepinac. That's why they put him on trial. They wanted to destroy the Catholic Church, and in order to do that, they had to associate him with the failed Ustasha regime. Uh, Stepinac stood up to both the Ustasha and the communists. Now, whether whether he felt that they were equally dangerous, I don't know. I mean, he was also a, a patriot. I think he was a Croatian patriot. He wanted to wanted to defend his country. He understood that the Ustasha were basically inspired by alien ideologies that were not compatible with Catholicism. I mean, first of all, uh, Italian fascism. Okay, was not compatible. The Ustasha was a creation of Italian fascism. Uh, at the same time, when the Nazis invaded, they started talking about ideologically alien issues like race. Uh, you know, I, you know, I was scheduled to have a debate uh, in Zagreb with uh, with the white racist nationalists, whatever you want to call them. And I thought, this is providential. What better place to discuss race than the former Yugoslavia, where it had absolutely no meaning whatsoever? The big divisions in Yugoslavia were all religious divisions. Okay? And so Stepinac is smart enough to understand that when, when the Nazis come in and they try to come up with some type of racial distinction between Serbs and Croats, it doesn't make any sense. He understands that. Okay, and he stood up to both, and I think I think he should be canonized. Has he been canonized? Is is as he? I'm not sure, but uh, I'm okay. I'm pretty sure that he. I, I don't know. I don't know. To be honest, I don't know. I have to check uh, on that. Because I I know he was in the cards. I know priests who had read the dossier from Rome, and they felt that he was a saint. He should be canonized. I feel he should be canonized. But the problem we have in the Catholic Church right now is that Jews have veto power over who gets canonized. And so I don't know whether you know the story of Father Dehon. He was sketch a French priest was scheduled to be canonized. He's been put on hold because the Jews objected, and I suspect. What we're seeing here is the residual effect of this smear of Stepinac as associated with the Ustasha that is being used uh, uh, against him, which is unfair. But that's the way it goes right now. How do the Jews uh, work? How, how do they have power over, over Vatican, over Catholic Church? You wrote a book on Jewish revolutionary spirit. Could you uh, introduce our public uh, to to the to your book and um, the uh, yeah and answer my yes my question. I, I wrote that I wrote that book in the wake of 2003 uh, which was the year in which the United States invaded Iraq and I watched that period of time as this 
group of Jewish revolutionaries called neoconservatives basically took over American, America's foreign policy and involved it in a completely senseless war uh, from the American perspective in Iraq. The war was fought for Israel's interest. America had nothing to do with it. And I thought someone's got to deal with this issue Some, because no one, no one was allowed to talk about Jews. As soon as you mentioned the word Jew, you were called an anti-Semite. And so therefore you couldn't come up with a critique of American foreign policy because they determined American foreign policy. So I decided to write the book and I decided you have to define what a Jew is and you can't listen to them. The anti-Semitism is a racial term. It comes from Wilhelm Marr's book, uh, Der Sieg des Judentums über das Christentum, uh, which came out in 1871. Uh, and it had nothing to do with uh, Catholic principles. It was a way of avoiding religious categories and dealing with the Jews. So I took it back to the original uh, beginning, which I think is the foot of the cross, where the Jews rejected Jesus Christ. Uh, when you reject Jesus Christ, you reject the Logos. When you reject Logos, you're rejecting the order of the universe. And when you reject the order of the universe, you become a revolutionary. And I think that's been the history of the Jewish people ever since the crucifixion, all the way up to the present. Uh, uh, no matter how you want to define the present, the neoconservatives were a Jewish revolutionary group. Uh, before that, we had the Bolsheviks, another Jewish revolutionary group, and so on and so forth. And that's what that book, uh, that book traces and tries to trace the influence of this group of people over world politics. Could, could the concept of Jewish revolutionary spirit be equated or explained as, uh, as some sort of a uh, psychological uh, thing? Uh, for example, uh, is this some sort of um, disregard for, for order? And, how, and if it is, uh, how, how does it happen? How does it happen that the, the, the human being has this uh, overwhelming disregard for, for order? Does it, does it have a genetic component or, or not? What no. do you think? No, there's no genetic component whatsoever. The, 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 your genes determine the shape of your nose and the color of your hair, but they don't determine what you think. And this is clearly a pattern of thought. Uh, so it's, it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not psychological. Psychological means having to do with an, the soul of an individual. I'm saying it's theological. It's theological because this group of people made a decision about God. And, and it was a group of people. This group of people had an identity then. It wasn't just individuals. Okay, when I say the, Jew, when I say the Jews killed Christ, I'm referring to the Jewish people. That doesn't mean that every Jew in Jerusalem did, agreed with that. The Blessed Mother did not yell crucify him. And if you're talking about genetic or DNA material, uh, she was as Jewish as everyone else. That's not what this is. This is a theological civil war be, uh, among the Jews. And the one group accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and they became known as the Catholic Church. And one group rejected him, and they became known as Jews in all of their manifestations of revolutionary activity. That's, that's what we're talking about here. I think you have to understand it from a theological perspective. Because otherwise, it's too mysterious. You can't make any judgments. You can't make any statements one way or the other. This is, a, 
So did the Jewish people have an identity then? Yes. Did they have leaders? Yes. It was called the Sanhedrin then. Do the Jewish people have an identity now? Yes, they do. Every year, Germans write a reparations check for World War II to the Jews. And there's a group of people that cashes that check. Does that mean every Jew gets the money? No, that's the whole point of Norman Finkelstein's book, The Holocaust Industry. The Jewish organizations get the money and they use it to instill fear in the Jewish people to keep them under control. That's the way it works now. That's the way it's worked for thousands of years now. Uh, what's your relationship towards um, ADL? Did you have any uh, problems with ADL in in your in your life or, or I am I am I have the honor of being named as one of the 10 people who should be banned on the internet uh, and that honor was given to me by the ADL now think of how many people use the internet on a daily basis we're talking about billions of people so the ADL has singled me out as Uh, one of the people who should not be allowed to do what we're doing right now, in other words, to talk. So, I, 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 yes, the ADL does not like what I'm doing. They've mentioned my name specifically. And what they've done over this past year, in effect, is that they made me famous <laughs> because they started mentioning my name. The first uh, wave of attack from Jewish organizations is called Dynamic Silence. And for years and years and years, let's say ever since the publication of the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit in 2009, I was on their list. If, but you had to log in to uh, the ADL's website to find out. Now they went public. Sasha Baron Cohen gave a speech in November. They issued the list the day afterwards. And uh, they brought about the very opposite of what they intended. I did a video on the ADL and uh, it's gotten a lot of views. And I think what we're seeing here is the ADL has now been exposed as a money laundering operation whose main goal is to keep Jewish criminals out of jail. This is true of Meyer Lansky, Mo Dallas, all the way up to Jason, uh, uh, Jeffrey Epstein. This is what they've done. And uh, they, uh, they create things like uh, hate speech. Hate speech is a Jewish creation. They created that during the great battle of 2019 to basically silence anyone whose speech they did not like. Uh, and uh, I would say it has failed. Uh, and now we have, uh, I think we turned the corner on this thing. I think, I think many people, maybe not the majority, but many people realize that the ADL is a completely crooked operation and that the, 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 uh, the, uh, the, People, the, the determination of who gets to speak on the Internet should not be left in the hands of people like this. And I think that is de facto has become the situation. I think they failed in their attempt to basically shut down the Internet. I have to somewhat mockingly play the devil's advocate. Uh, but isn't it so that even discussions like this, like this discussions uh, of ours, Uh, can lead to a new Holocaust. <laughs> a new Holocaust? No, I've uh, let's let's that's ridiculous. Uh, but let's that's what they feel. I mean, I just did an article in uh, Culture Wars on this new series that was released by Amazon Prime called Hunters: 
Have you has hunters made it to Slovenia? Do you get Amazon Prime there? Uh, uh, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'll I'll check that. And anyway, will, it's a it's a completely paranoid Jewish fantasy about uh, anti Nazis taking over America in 1977 and creating the Fourth Reich. Complete paranoid uh, Jewish fantasy. So, no, it doesn't lead to a Holocaust. They use this to instill fear in the little Jews that send their contributions into the ADL. What they do, uh, if, what happens, though, is that when you suppress the ability to talk about things openly, that does create violence. And we know this because uh, one of the people who went into a synagogue, I think it was either Pittsburgh or Poway, I forget now, wrote a manifesto about why he did what he did. And he said, no one's listening. When you when you have the sense of hopelessness, when you have the sense that you're all alone, that nobody's listening and that the world's collapsing and somebody's got to do something, that's what leads to violence. So I said, I said this before, but I, I did the video and I pointed the finger and I said, the ADL is responsible for these shootings. There's just no question. There is a direct correlation between the suppression of speech and violent reaction. And they're responsible for it. I have to ask you uh, uh, some more localized question and use your vast knowledge of uh, of things. Do you have a take on on the war in the Balkans in former Yugoslavia and the, the role of American or global Jews uh, on on the situation? Um, for example. Yes. Uh, the Kosovo uh, becoming uh, second Albania uh, and so forth and so forth and and the war between Croats and Bosnians and Serbs and, uh, and so yes. forth. Yes, I I got I, I I the first I was in Yugoslavia for the first time in 1988, and I went to Mostar, uh, and because Mostar is the big city near Medjugorje. And everybody, all devout Catholics in America were going to Medjugorje and they were having visions and their rosary beads were turning into gold. And I thought, this can't be true. <laughs> and I went to, don't laugh, this is what people were doing here. So I went to Mostar and I met with Bishop Perich. Uh, no, actually, no, I'm sorry. I met with Bishop Zonich. Bishop Zonich was uh, bishop of the time at that time. And he told me the story of what was going on, really. And Uh, what was going on was basically a, a little battle between the bishop and the Franciscans over who was going to control the church in Choplina and a couple other places. So that's not that's not a big deal, uh, okay? But so I kept thinking, well, how is it, how did it get so big? Well, the problem is that the CIA became involved with this little battle, and Medjugorje became a front in the Cold War. Medjugorje was to Yugoslavia what solidarity was to Poland. It was one of these grassroots organizations that the CIA loved to support to create a, a front, a, a, an internal front. So I, when I got back, I wrote to the CIA, and they sent me 20 pages of documents on Medjugorje, and it was pretty much all blacked out. It was completely worthless document. And then they had the gall to charge me $150 for it. So I stiffed the CIA. I told them, wrote them a letter back saying, I'm not going to pay you $100. You got billions of dollars. I'm not paying a penny. And nothing happened. So no airstrike from the CIA because I didn't pay. 
But the point here is that what started off as a local phenomenon suddenly had international resonance. And so it happened like one year after Tito died. When I, when I went into the chancery office in Mostar, you look across the Naredva River and there's a mountain and spelled in stones is Tito, we love you. So Tito's memory was still fresh in the people's mind. There's a sense of everything's loosening up. And then suddenly everybody starts going to Medjugorje because it's just in the air. This is part, it, it, you could feel the sense that in Yugoslavia that the world was falling apart. Okay, and something new was happening and the end of communism and the Catholics all hated communism. And there were the two people who created uh, Medjugorje were basically uh, Tomislav Lasic and Jozo Zovko, the two priests who were at the parish. And Zovko was clearly <laughs> he was a descendant of the Ustasha. Uh, he was involved with the Ustasha, they, the Siroki Brieg. Do you remember? Do you know where Siroki yeah, Brieg yeah. is? Well, that was the Usta that was the headquarters of the Ustasha in in Bosnia. I went there. There are pictures of all these soldiers all over the wall of all World War II guys who died in World War II. So it was the rebirth of nationalism. That's what that's what happened at this time uh, beyond Medjugorje. And the man who who crystallized that, who put who expressed that was Franjo Tuđman. And Franjo Tuđman wrote a book called I think it's called Nationalism. The English translation is called Nationalism, and he talked about. It was the first time I ever stood America because I realized America is just like Yugoslavia. We have three ethnic groups based on three religions. So in America, you're a Catholic, a Protestant or a Jew. And in Yugoslavia, you're either a Serb, a Croat or a Muslim. It was it was. And, and these groups are always in conflict with each other. And there's a dominant group. I mean, it was Tujman's book was brilliant. It was a brilliant book, and it helped me understand America and Yugoslavia and what was going on in Yugoslavia. And at that point, the the world powers got involved. They're not going to let a crisis go to waste. And so they got involved. Uh, I told you the CIA got, was already involved with Medjugorje, promoting it. Suddenly, all these glossy pictures of the seers show up in America. Where did they come from? Who got who 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 had the money to promote this? Well, I think it was the government. I asked Frank Shakespeare when I in 88, I went back to Rome. He was the ambassador to the Vatican. I said, is the CIA, CIA behind Medjugorje? Oh, I can't answer a question like that, he said. But he said, this is the type of organization we would support. Well, I think he was pretty much telling me that, the, 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 that they were. So then the United States interest is to break up Yugoslavia. Because Yugoslavia, I think in their eyes, was dominated by Serbia, and Serbia is a proxy of Russia. And so we're talking about the breakup of the Soviet Union occurring around the same time. And let's use these nationalist forces. Let's get these national forces fighting each other. And that will bring about the, the breakup of Yugoslavia. And then we can take something, a country that was a significant player in the third world during the 70s, Tito was a figure that, to, to be reckoned with among th the third world in the 70s. Break it up into pseudo countries like Bosnia-Herzegovina. Has that ever been a country? I'm, 
I'm not, it's so small, it's completely insignificant. And, and that is the point of breaking up Yugoslavia. So now you have countries that are small and insignificant uh, and uh, at war with each other, and that fits the plan of the United States. Now, the other plan, of course, is to weaponize the Muslims. And that's uh, what happened with Kosovo. The United States came out in support of Kosovo to basically destroy Serbia. I think the goal of this was to destroy Serbia as Russia's proxy in the Balkans. I think that was the main point, to weaken their influence there. And they used the, uh, the, the Croats, certainly, were then weaponized. And they, they, I know they were using money, Medjugorje money, to buy weapons during the Civil War. So, so in your opinion, uh, sorry, uh, you, the Albanians were used as a, as a tool against Serbs because they were mostly the Muslims? The Muslims were used as a tool. The Muslims were instrumentalized as a tool. So in a sense, the same group of people that the United States is calling terrorists when they're in places like Syria are called freedom fighters when they're in Kosovo because they are working for American, the American foreign policy goals. Uh, that, that's exactly what was happening. And so they, they used the Germans. The Germans were in on this. They had there was a uh, they staged an atrocity at Rachak. I don't know whether you remember this, but basically there were dead bodies there. They took pictures of the dead bodies. It turns out that the bullet holes in the clothing did not line up with the bullet holes in the body. They had been killed. But this was used as the pretext to attack Serbia and drop bombs on them for 70 days. 70 days we uh, they they used to attack Serbia. This was the Clintons uh, basically. Uh, the, the Clintons uh, attempt to destabilize Serbia by using weaponizing Muslims. So, how how to make sense of of the whole situation from the point of view of a European? Uh, you, you have Democrats in, and Republicans in America, and you have uh, so-called conservative media and progressive media, and it seems that there's there's a conflict between them but is there really a conflict between them or or not how to make sense of all this uh, new, for example and uh, and how to explain it with the the jewish power over american nation right okay so yes there is a conflict between democrats and republicans because they both want to occupy the same political office like uh, president so obviously there's a conflict when it comes to the president but when it comes to foreign policy, no, there is no there is no conflict. There's a consensus, and the consensus is we do whatever needs to, to, to what needs to be done in order to promote the American empire. Okay. Now, in order to understand what happened in America, you have to understand what happened at the beginning of the uh, let's say the end of the 1970s. Uh, 1978. Jimmy Carter is running for president. He appoints Paul Volcker as head of the Federal Reserve System, which is our bank, our national bank. And at that point, Paul Volcker serves only the interest of the creditor. He's only interested in serving the creditor. And so he raises interest rates up to 20 percent, uh, introduces usury to the United States economy in a way that would never be, existed before. To, over this period of time from 1979 to now, those people who had, were involved in usury, 
the oligarchs concentrated enormous amounts of wealth in their hands. And one of the main groups of users was the Jews. So during this period of time, these people, with because of their wealth, began to take more and more control over the American government. To the point where, as I said, 2003, the neoconservatives, which were a Jewish operation, basically took control of American foreign policy. The people of the United States uh, rejected this, and that's why they voted for Donald Trump. And so Donald Trump comes into office, and what does he do? He hands the foreign policy of the United States of America over to three rich Jews, Sheldon Adelson, Paul Singer, and Bernard Marcus. These people got rich on usury during this period of time. They had enormous amounts of money, and they bought the Republican Party. They own the Republican Party. And so our foreign policy is now even more in the service of Israel than it was in 2003 because of this money, this concentration of wealth into fewer and fewer hands. So you, you have this Republican Party nowadays, modern Republican Party bought by the Jews by the rich Jews, uh, which is extremely pro-Israel, Zionist. Uh, uh, and you have this funny situation wh where, uh, for example, New York Times as a progressive uh, and also Jewish-owned uh, media right. uh, plays uh, a role of, of, of pro Islamist media, uh, 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 contra Israel. How to make sense of, of that? Because I, I, I read a, an article in New York Times a couple of days ago where they, they had an interview with a, with a so-called Taliban and, and they uh, gave a platform to, to an Islamist, uh, which is at least prima, prima facie somehow against the Jews. How to make <laughs> I would, I, I, first of all, uh, there are two groups of Jews. There are the majority of, it goes, the majority and the minority. <clears throat> This goes back to the Pale of the Settlement uh, before the Russian Revolution. The Pale of the Settlement was, used to be the eastern border of Poland, and then it became the western border of Russia after the partition of Poland. That means that's where most of the world's Jews lived. At this point, All of these Western revolutionary ideas started to come into the pale of the settlement, and they started to have an influence on young Jewish people at this time. The two main ideologies were Zionism and communism. One is Jewish nationalism, and one is Jewish internationalism. And to this day, there is this kind of split between the Jews. So on the one hand, you have Uh, Jew, uh, Donald Trump allying himself with Benjamin Netanyahu and the Likudnik party. And uh, this alienates ma very many Jews in the country because the majority of Jews, I would say, do not, they're not conservative. They would be called liberal. Uh, they are socialists. They are the heirs of the socialists and the communists just as much as the Likudniks are the heirs of the Zionists. And so you have this conflict and the conflict now uh In the New York Times, uh, anything that Donald Trump did would be bad in the eyes of the New York Times. New York Times hates Donald Trump. And I think this is why they would interview something, uh, give a sympathetic hearing to the Taliban, because Trump is trying to get out of Afghanistan, and uh, this will make him look bad. So I think that's 
that's what explains it. We are we Americans now are hostage to this basically Jewish civil war. And we have we have generally have a choice between, you know, supporting liberal Jews or supporting conservative Jews. And that's pretty much it. That, that, that shows you the power. The, the liberal Jews control Hollywood. You know, the conservative Jews control the foreign policy. Between the two of them, there's not a whole lot of space for people like me to express my point of view. I don't I don't exist. The only way I exist is as an anti-Semite on the list of the ADL. Otherwise, I would have no existence whatsoever. Would a conservative Jew like Ben Shapiro debate you? You ought to ask Ben. I'd be happy to debate him. Uh, he, he, you know, I just did a show with Charles Moskowitz today. He's a Jew. You know, I talk to Jews all the time. Many Jews agree with me. Uh, it's not a que- it's a question of Jewish ideology and and a question of uh, ultimate reality and a question of theology. And I'm happy to talk to them. But uh, I'm saying in general, Catholics do not have a platform at all. The only platform we have is the Internet now. It's it's that simple. It, I, I could talk about the history of this. I mean, the battle between Catholic and Hollywood Jews over movies that began in the 1930s, the Legion of Decency, uh, the way the Jews used the Holocaust to overturn uh, prohibitions against nudity and obscenity. Uh, this is how they gained control. And now they have pretty much, uh, they had total control until the internet. And now the whole battle of 2019 was to say, okay, we're going to extend total control over the internet as well. So I think that's pretty much where it stands right now. We had a big battle and, and uh, we're at a standstill. You wrote a book about uh, this stuff called Libido Dominandi. Right. Um, could you present a little bit uh, it to our audience? Libido Dominandi is a book, the subtitle is Sexual Liberation and Political Control. And the point of this is that all forms of sexualization are forms of political control. And the example I gave many times was the Israelis uh, going into Ramallah and taking over the Palestinian TV stations and then broadcasting pornography. Uh, the Palestinians could not go out of their homes because of uh, uh, Israeli snipers would have shot them if they had done that. The only source of information they had was turning on their television and the television was playing pornography. Now, I'm saying this is a paradigm that allows you to understand that pornography is not freedom. It's not entertainment. It's psychological warfare. This is proof that it's being used as psychological warfare. And now we have... Uh, a total lockdown of the entire world uh, because of this virus. And you have uh, religious, in, South, in Indiana, religious services are banned, but pornography is accessible. So this is, Ramallah was a paradigm of sexual liberation and political control that has been posed on the entire world now. This book begins with uh, the French Revolution, and it goes all the way up to uh, almost almost the present showing one instance after the other. I think it's, once you say it, everybody understands it. And it was translated into Polish. I did a book tour in Poland for the Polish edition. And a year or so later, I was in Argentina. A Polish man wrote to me and he said, between your book and the Polish bishop statement, you have destroyed gay marriage in Poland. 
So I think it's it's had some success. And I think this was in many ways the first wave of taking control of uh, communist countries in the East. I, I mean, if you look at places like uh, Prague uh, with uh, uh, during the time of Dubček and the man uh, Milan, Milan Kusera, the guy who was the lightness of being, what you had uh, is something similar to Dusan Makaviev in Serbia. In other words, a transformation of the communist countries via sexual liberation into a new and more effective form of control because you impose it on yourself. And I think now that because because of the book, Poland has awoken to that fact. And now all of Eastern Europe is causing problems for the European Union, especially Catholic countries like like Hungary, because we have a consciousness now of the new form of control that everyone embraced thinking that it was freedom after the fall of communism. I, I started my intellectual um, liberation, separation from mainstream education with libertarianism, as many of my um, friends. And uh, I have to ask you this question. You wrote a book, uh, Baron Metal, about the history of capitalism as a relationship between labor and usury. Uh, this is your critique of capitalism. Uh, this is uh, what's the difference between your critique of capitalism and Marx's critique of capitalism, or socialist, or, or progressive. Yeah, let me uh, first. Uh, Karl Marx was a materialist, and I'm a Catholic who do not believe in materialism. But let's say let's talk about where we agree. Oh, where do I agree with Karl Marx? I, Karl Marx said that labor is the source of all value, and that is a true statement. I agree with it. Uh, John Locke said that labor was the source of all value. Adam Smith said that labor was the source of all value. And Pope John Paul II said that labor is the source of all value in laborum exercens. So I'm in good company here uh, because it's true. Labor is the source of all value, and the only alternative, that is the Catholic alternative, if you want to have Catholic economics, it's valuing labor. There's only one other alternative, and that's the Jewish alternative, and that is proposed by Shylock in uh, Shakespeare's play, The Merchant of Venice, and Shylock says that my ducats can copulate faster than Laban's ewes and rams. So he's talking about usury, he's talking about lending money out at compound interest. That is the fundamental conflict in economic history, as, as I see it. Okay, now, how do I differ from Karl Marx? Well, Karl Marx, uh, first of all, does, has nothing to say about usury. He attacks capitalism, which is it's a, a completely neutral concept. And, and in many ways, capitalism, if by that we mean, no, I'm sorry, I didn't say capitalism, I said I meant capital. Capital, he attacks capital. As, as something intrinsically evil, it's not intrinsically evil. Okay, it's a neutral. It's a tool. It's it's a it's like a hammer. It's like saying, well, that hammer is not intrinsically evil. You can use it to kill the lady next door, but that doesn't mean the hammer is evil. And why is it not evil? Because you, if you buy shares in a company, uh, you're sharing risk. And if you share risk, you have a, a right to a return on your investment. And shared risk is better than a loan because there's no shared risk in a loan. 
So that's where I differ. Uh, one area I differ with Marx, but Marx then, because he was a materialist, uh, didn't understand the full implication of labor being the source of all value. But he didn't because he didn't see the the creation, uh, the universe is a product of God's labor. Uh, and he also made a mistake by thinking that he could deduce the price of an object from the amount of labor that was put into it. And that was Karl Marx's labor theory of value. Were you taught this in school? Were you taught, are you too young to have been taught communist theory? Yeah, I'm too young to be taught that in school, but we were taught about that in, um, in our media, in our media. Right. Probably a lot. So, so the point here is, no, you cannot deduce the price from the amount of labor. And the example, the classic example is you could, you could build a vineyard in Iceland and it would require enormous amounts of labor and you'd end up with crappy wine at the end of it. Uh, and so let's just leave the Icelanders to catch cod and we'll build the, build the vineyard on Kirk, uh, where my friend has a vineyard, and it will be less labor and better wine. So you can't, the only way you can come up with a price is through a market. And the market, uh, basically, uh, the, so the, the center of all economic activity is a man who, one man who wants to buy something and one man who wants to sell something. And so that is because, because both of these men are trying to achieve the good. And anytime you achieve, want to achieve the good, you're talking about morality. And this is why, because, and this is why economics was considered part of moral philosophy, even at the time of Adam Smith. And that's the tradition that I'm trying to resurrect in Barren Metal. Uh, and not the tradition after Adam Smith, uh, economics was always construed as pseudophysics, and that's not what it is. Uh -huh. you, you mean uh, it, it's um, it's considered uh, some sort of science today, and it's not. not it is a science. Economics is a science, but it's not physics. And Adam Smith took Newtonian physics uh, and basically transposed it into an economic realm. So uh, Adam uh, Newton talked about gravity and inertia, and Adam Smith transposed that into competition and self-interest or self-interest in competition. Self-interest is gravity, inertia is competition. And as a result, uh, they, they started making calculations as if human beings didn't matter. And that led to things like, uh, well, you know, the 19th century English economic school, which led to the starvation of the Irish because they were immutable physical laws and you can't intervene in the market. And so you have to let the Irishmen starve to death. No, there's something wrong with that. And that's that's precisely the, the, the perversion of economics that took place because it was treated as physics. Does uh, the Republican Party uh, take it as, as physics entirely or, or are there any Republicans that you would consider um, somehow different from that? Oh, well, the I mean, the classic... Uh, Republican was Ron Paul, who was a classic libertarian. And Ron Paul just, uh, when the coronavirus came, he did a video defending price gouging. 
This is a type of ridiculous extreme that libertarianism leads to. Uh, it happened across uh, um, America, largely beginning with the Reagan era. It, it, Reagan presidency gave intellectual and moral legitimacy to this uh, libertarian ideology. How else can I describe it? So Milton Friedman, is this is the time when Milton Friedman is looked upon as the great guru? Because we were talking about a time that was the reaction to communism. We're talking about, the, you know, what I just said about Yugoslavia, remember? 1979, uh, 1980, 1981, uh, Tito dies. Who's going to succeed him? Communism's on its way out. And what's, going to, what's the opposite of communism? Well, it's capitalism. And so you went from one form of theft to another form of theft. Uh, all in East, happened all in Eastern Europe within a matter of years. So after the fall of communism, you have looters like Jeffrey Sachs, uh, Jewish looters, working for Harvard at the time, goes engages in the privatization of Poland, which meant the looting of private public resources and putting them in the hands of a few people. And then the worst case scenario was, of course, the looting of the Soviet Union where the entire wealth of that huge country is put into the pockets of eight oligarchs, seven of whom were Jewish, who then sent the money back to Wall Street. And it was a completely corrupt operation. And it nearly killed the Russian people. I mean, the population of Russia actually went down uh, because of the collaboration of Boris Yeltsin uh, and Jeffrey Sachs. Boris Yeltsin's job was to stay drunk uh, while Jeffrey Sachs looted the country. <laughs> a couple of months ago, uh, something um, peculiar happened. Um, a movement called the Groeper Movement. Uh, the, this Groeper Movement uh, mentioned a lot of your thoughts and uh, it's um, ideologically somehow connected to, to you. Uh, they started a culture war against uh, mainstream conservatism, for example, right. yeah. Charlie Kirk. Uh, what's your take on this uh, this movement? Yeah, this, this was a, a group of 20-year-olds. Uh, a guy, I think a guy by the name of Nick Fuentes in Chicago came up with the term. And, and basically he represented, he gave an accurate presentation of the actual situation of 20-year-old men in America, the people in their 20s. And the fact of the matter was that they were overburdened with student debt and they were addicted to pornography. In other words, subjected to two ruthless forms of control. And they, uh, I think my book, uh, Libido Dominanti, helped explain to them how sexual liberation was a form of political control. I mean, once you say it, it's suddenly, oh yeah, now I understand it. You don't have to read the, I think you should read the book, but I mean, the idea is so clear and that's, they started to act on it. So it, I didn't direct any of this type of stuff, but uh, in November, a group of people, uh, men were going to boycott pornography and abstain from masturbation. Well, that's good, isn't it? Well, no, it's not good because th this is the main form of control that's imposed on them. So the Rolling Stone magazine uh, wrote an article in which accused these people of being anti-Semites because they were not because they were, 
<laughs> I'm not making this up. This is for uh, real. This is uh, uh, this is a sign of their desperation, because this was this was one more instance that the oligarchs were losing control of the mind of the American people. I mean, Donald Trump was another instance. There are many instances, but this was another instance. And the oligarchs were upset because someone someone said sexual liberation is a form of control, and people started to wake up to that fact and act on it. So then uh, I happen to know, So then Charlie Kirk arrives on the scene. He's a 20-year-old. He's there. To, to control. He's a commissar. We would call him, in, in if it were the Soviet Union, he would be a commissar. He's sent out to keep this group under control in the name of representing them. He doesn't represent them at all. And so he has this thing called Turning Point USA. And he, you know, he's supposed to talk to this demographic. So he shows up in one of his talks on campus and he's got a black guy with him. And the black guy's a homosexual. And suddenly Charlie Kirk is telling everybody, these 20-year-olds, the Groypers, if you want to be on board to be calling yourself a conservative, you have to accept homosexuality. Well, this is too much because they were just awakening to the fact of how sexual liberation is controlling them. And so people, uh, actually, my, my assistant went to the talk and he stood up there and said, how is anal sex going to help us win the culture wars? Well, the whole thing blew up at that point. It blew up. Because everyone suddenly understood that Charlie Kirk was what we call a coke sucker. I don't. You're going to have to work on this with your Slovenian audience, okay? But we, the term comes from two terms, okay? It's the Koch brothers were two of the richest Jews in America, and they were one of the main funders of Turning Point USA, which is Charlie Kirk's operation. Uh, the other term is cocksucker, which is a, a derogatory term for a homosexual. So you put the two together and Charlie Kirk is a cocksucker. I said that and suddenly everybody was talking about this. So it just shows you that uh, it, it, Charlie Kirk lost control of his audience and he exposed himself as been simply a tool of the oligarchs who were using him to control these people and, and destroy them. And so it's, it was an encouraging sign. Because, as I said, you know, I mean, the book is coming out. Logos is rising. All of a sudden, all these people realize, young people who have been befuddled and confused, they realize there is an order to the universe. And your mind can access that order to the universe. And if you act according to that order of the universe, you will have a successful life. They're starting to wake up to this fact. And that's what happened. That's what happened over this period of time. What's your estimation about the impact of your of your thought uh, about such movements as Groypers? Uh, because I have some friends, uh, and we're all um, how would I call this um, right wing or conservative nerds or geeks? And you uh, are for us uh, as uh, Jay Z is for an average, uh, I don't know, music lover or something <laughs> like that. But, but I'm not quite sure how many of us uh, uh, more uh, is this impacting. What's your estimation? of? This? I have no idea. I, first of all, I don't even know who Jay-Z is. Who's Jay-Z? Uh, 
It's, uh, is he a rapper? I think he's a rap yeah. star, isn't he? I, wait a minute. He, he's the guy who organized the Super Bowl halftime show. So I, I'm, I'm, fl- I'm sure Jay-Z would be flattered to hear that he's being compared to me. I'm sure he would be flattered to hear that. <laughs> but uh, to answer your question, I don't know. You'll never know. The, the whole point of being a writer is you write it off and then you send it off into the ether and you don't know what's going to happen. Maybe nobody's going to read it. And I think there's a theological uh, equivalent to this because Jesus Christ was talking about how does the word of God spread throughout the world? And he said, you don't know. <laughs> you don't know. He said, it's like leaven. It's like yeast in a loaf. So you have dough. And it's it's like this little lump of stuff and you put the yeast, you knead it, and then you come down in the morning and it's this big and it's spread all throughout it and you didn't do it. Uh, and so I think that's the same thing with with your influence. I mean, you write something. I've been doing this for 40 years now. It's not as if I did it yesterday. And lots of times, I mean, my, my prayer uh, was, Lord, we have labored all night and caught nothing. I, I could say that prayer with a, a lot of sincerity. But I mean, the point here is you don't know. You don't know. Sometimes somebody says, writes to you and says, you changed my life. And you're just grateful to hear that. A lot of times you don't hear anything. A lot of times it's, you know, Lord, we have labored all night and caught nothing. I, uh, you, you mentioned uh, you were supposed to debate or talk to, to Jared Taylor from right. American Renaissance in Zagreb. Um, about the the race issue, then I have some neo pagan brethren that, that would like to uh, um, ask you this question. Um, could could you do you do you know the work of of, of Jared Taylor? Do you know his arguments? Uh, could you create a steel man for him and then uh, refute it? Uh, how would you? How would you? Uh, could you um, uh, present to us? How would you uh, um, uh, make your arguments in? in do you know? Do you know what? Frody Frody wrote to me uh, when the coronavirus broke. Frody Mityord is the guy who's organizing this for the Scandia Forum, and he said the debate is not canceled; it's postponed. Okay, so I am not going to answer your question. Because the debate is going to take place uh, uh, at some point, and that's the point where I'm going to deal with that issue. So tell your your white boy friends to come to the debate <laughs> the next time, and then they'll find out the answer to that question. Uh, I mean, so the question I would put is, when did Tom Sunich become white? Was he born white? Or did he become white? He was probably born a Croatian. He was probably baptized a Catholic. And at some point he became white. And that's uh, part of what I was going to talk about. But I don't want to get into the whole thing because then I'll ruin the debate. Yeah, I, I can <laughs> I can understand that. Dr. Jones, you made me extremely happy because you talked to me. Um, thank you for everything. I hope we we will uh, have another discussion some other time. Um, have a nice evening. Uh, I hope your ideas will spread soon and in uh, great measure. And um, thank you. Thank, thank you, you once again.
Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.